Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Today, we're in a weird, weird sort of passage. It looks kind of on the outside as though it is typical of what we've seen here. Alyosha is once again bustling about, talking to various characters, um, sort of like getting both the audience to appreciate what has happened after Dmitri's arrest, but also sort of doing the, the normal consolation and, and checking in sort of thing that we've come to expect from a lot of these passages in Dostoevsky. Um, but what's significant here is that this is kind of it for these passages. These may This may be the last time we see some of these characters in such an intimate setting. Um, we are very much approaching the end game of this novel. And one of the things that I found most striking about just what Dostoevsky is doing in this passage, um, sort of gearing us up for, for the big kind of denouement, the big climactic revelations and, and decisions, um, this is very reminiscent of a fairly typical phenomenon in Shakespeare, honestly. Like, uh, Shakespeare usually publishes his, his plays in five acts, and the, the trajectory of those five acts has been pretty solidly studied and dissected by scholars. Um, and it's a really interesting interesting structure, especially if you contrast it with the typical three-act structure of modern Hollywood. Um, but what I want to sort of focus on here is that Shakespeare in his fourth act is doing exactly the same thing as Dostoevsky is doing here. Um, typically, the big change-up, you know, confrontations and stuff happen in Shakespeare's third act. So, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet, um, in the first act we establish the characters, we have the first big brawl scene, we introduce Romeo. In the second act, the big plot is actually, like, revealed. Romeo falls in love with Juliet, and now, you know, they're, they're madly in love with each other, despite the fact that their families are feuding. In the third act, we get this big change of fortune for everyone involved. Uh, Tybalt kills Mercutio, Romeo kills Tybalt, and it jeopardizes the entire relationship and just throws the entire situation into even greater chaos. And you can definitely see this in Dostoevsky as well. The third act is where Elder Zosima dies. The third act is where Alyosha has his big revelation. The third act is where Dmitri is arrested. Um, the whole situation that has been building throughout this novel like comes to a head here. But what's interesting is that in the fourth act for Shakespeare, he's largely marking time. Crazy shit has gone down in act three. All of the characters are, are very much reeling from whatever the effects of the Act 3 uh, action has been, but we're not ready for the climax yet. We're not ready for Romeo and Juliet to kill themselves. We're not ready for Hamlet to face off and, you know, everybody to die. Um, we're not ready for any of the usual big climactic events that are happening. And so, in the fourth act, what typically happens is Shakespeare is sort of maneuvering his characters into the position they need to be for the final act. Um, Shakespeare will typically have all of these characters sort of like reacting to the third act and frenetically making these rash decisions. We get these very ominous, very portentous sort of monologues and discussions. Um, we get Hamlet, like, encountering the army as it's returning home and delivering this discussion about now he is resolved, now he is ready to go and, you know, kill his father and, and see the, the action resolved. Um, in Romeo and Juliet, we get, like, the friar sort of delivering his speeches about how, you know, he's going to be able to maneuver these two kids back together again, and the two of them are sort of saying their last goodbyes to one another um, in the hopes of running away together. Um, 
Here in Dostoevsky, we see something similar. Um, we get all of these characters being very busy and sort of setting the stage for the big climactic trial scene that is going to be most of Act 5 in this book. Um, and in this section of this book especially, we see how clearly that works. Um, Dostoevsky is very much maneuvering each of his characters into the position that they're going to be for the final act. And interestingly enough for us, um, we haven't seen these characters in a long time. Like, as much as we have seen Grushenka in the sort of big, you know, like, debauchery scene with Dmitri, his, his spree with the poles and, and all that uh, activity there, remember, we have a three-month time gap uh, between book, uh, book 9 and book 10. Um, and for a while, like, when we in fact come back from the time gap, we're hanging out with Kolya Krasopkin and not seeing any of the characters we're used to seeing. Um, Alyosha is there, but we only see him kind of secondhand. We are told that he's you know, matured significantly since leaving the monastery. He's dressed up very nicely. He holds himself very differently from his earlier revelation. But all of the characters we meet here, Grushenka, Madame Koklikov, Liza, um, we haven't seen them since the three-month break has taken place. So on the one hand, this is exposition for Dostoevsky. He's showing us where these characters are after the three months have transpired. But on the other hand, that three-month gap has given Dostoevsky an opportunity to maneuver them all into positions that help to sort of draw out um, their final resolution. So I want to sort of look at each of these characters one by one and look at the way that Dostoevsky is sort of confronting these characters, how he portrays them. Because interestingly enough, the most interesting characters and the most interesting character development that we tend to see here are the ones who don't show up very much at all. Like, remember, this is Brother Ivan Fyodorovich, and yet Brother Ivan doesn't show up. We do not actually talk to him. We do not actually interact with him until the last two or three pages of this section. And yet, he is still the focus of this entire section. Everybody is talking about him. Everybody has been interacting with him. Just the fact that Alyosha hasn't seen him, doesn't know what's going on in his life, is no indication that we aren't learning about him as this goes on. He is, in many ways, like a specter, a ghost, haunting this section. And his resolution is very much going to be the sort of crux of this fourth act portentousness before Dmitri's fate is decided. Um, but let's start with Alyosha. Once again, Alyosha has changed uh, in the three-month sort of hiatus that we, we were not able to see what happened to him. Obviously, his big, you know, momentous revelation, his, his Cana Galilee moment, his kissing the ground and realizing that all of this is beautiful, um, this would have a serious impact on him. And Dostoevsky wants us to, to see that this is not just a passing sort of transition. No, this is, this is the resolution of Alyosha's character. And the form that we see him in now is his final form, so to speak. This is Alyosha fully developed as a character. And one of the things I find the most interesting about Alyosha in this situation is he is so passive here. Um, remember, the Elder Zosima, when, when we saw him interacting with, in many cases, these very same characters all the way back in Book 2, he tended to be very active. He asked probing questions. He offered them very insightful advice. He sort of cut them down to the core of their character. 
Alyosha has not entered that stage of his development. We do not see him doing these sorts of incisive, cutting observations the way that Zosima does. But what we do see is what we've seen with Alyosha all along. We see him as a sounding board here. We see that all of the characters have very much embraced him and now love him, rely on him, and talk to him very openly. You'll notice that Alyosha doesn't have a whole lot to say in these chapters. There are only really two moments that Alyosha has this big, major final word, um, namely with Dimitri and with Ivan, but we'll talk about them in their proper place. Most of the time, he's just asking questions, ascertaining, you know, what is going on in the mind of Grushenka, or in the mind of Madame Kotlikov, or in the mind of Lisa or Dmitri. Um, he is just basically standing there for these other characters to sort of reveal themselves, open themselves up to him. And he doesn't have a lot to offer in the way of advice. Like, 90% of what Alyosha does in this section is just ask questions, and not even, like, the probing, penetrating questions, but just questions that encourage the characters to reflect on themselves. Useful for Dostoevsky and for us, because it allows us to see what Grushenka is thinking and what Madame Kotlikov is thinking, but it is also surprisingly passive. Alyosha isn't really a character in motion anymore. Alyosha is what we've seen of him this entire time. He is active, but he's active in the last chapter, where he's trying to get Kolya Krasotkin to show up, where he's trying to get all of the kids to sort of reconcile with Ilyusha in the hope of saving his life, as desperate as that might be at this stage. He is active, and he is active specifically in his passivity. The fact that he does offer himself as basically a therapist, just going around and visiting people so they can sound off to him, is his way of changing their minds. Allowing them to reflect on themselves is exactly what they need at this point in time. And it is especially interesting because we need to contrast Alyosha's activity here with Rakuten. Rakuten we see even less than Ivan in this section. Rakuten only shows up when Alyosha bumps into him, uh, when he goes to see Dmitri. But all of the characters here mention that Rakuten has also been very active lately, um, and each of the characters has a relationship with Rakuten that we have not been able to see. Alyosha and Rakuten have just have been sort of presented to us by Dostoevsky as foils, this entire novel. Um, like, Rakuten is very much the dark interpretation of what Alyosha could be. Um, and it is, if anything, emphasized even more here. Um, in this section, I very much get this sense that Alyosha and Rakuten represent the sort of two poles. Alyosha the good pole and Rakuten the evil pole. And it is the whole town at this point, is engaged in this huge battle of wills, this epic conflict between good and evil represented, respectively, by Alyosha and Rakuten. Um, and we'll talk about exactly what Rakuten has been doing as we talk about the other characters we do, in fact, interact with more. We'll circle back around to him. The trick here is that they are all interwoven. It's real difficult to talk about this chapter, specifically because Dostoevsky is weaving these characters together. Rakuten and Ivan are sort of floating around in flashbacks and the way that these other characters talk about them. Um, they're all very much mixed up in each other's business, and only through talking to Grushenka, Madame Kotlikov, Lisa, and Dmitri does... Alyosha and the audience get a glimpse of what's going on with Rakuten and Ivan and some of the other characters. Um, 
So let's start with the actual like characters that Alyosha is visiting and getting a sense of what's going on with them, since Alyosha is just sort of our perspective character, and he doesn't add that much to what's going on. So let's start with Grushenka. Um, so obviously, Grushenka is a really dynamic character in this novel. Every chapter that we've seen Grushenka featured has been different from every other chapter. Um, you could argue that this is inconsistent portrayal on Dostoevsky's part, like this is like he doesn't have a handle on who Grushenka is. You could also argue that Dostoevsky is short, sort of tracking Grushenka's rapid development as a character from you know, chapter to chapter. So the first time we saw Grushenka, remember, she was hanging out with Katerina Ivanovna in this sort of, like, illicit meeting between the good girl and the bad girl vying for Dmitri's affections. And there she was sugary. She was, you know, overbearing. She was mincing her words and, and sort of pretending like she was this noble, proud lady um, who, you know absolutely played up to those stereotypes of being a, a woman of loose morals, a woman who is tempting and, and destroying these people. Um, the next time we really spend any time with her is when Alyosha visits her at Rakuten's behest, and Alyosha sees a totally different side of her. She's undressed, um, she is, you know, just sort of like keeping court in her own household. We do see her, you know, confront Alyosha, try and seduce Alyosha, and yet that backfires terribly because Alyosha is in no position to be seduced. And in that moment, we see her confess herself. We see her vulnerable. We see her strip herself of that sort of cloying, seductive persona and instead become vulnerable, helpless, desperate. Um, and it's that same vulnerable, vulnerable, helpless, and desperate uh, Grushenka who ultimately gets carried off by the Polish officer and who is rescued, question mark, at Makroya from, um, by Dmitri. Here we see a completely different Grushenka altogether. Um, she is still in her quasi-vulnerable state, but now she's stronger. She is now standing up for herself. She is not either tempting and destroying lives, and in fact, she regrets having brought both Dimitri and Fyodor to this point. Um, she wishes she had stopped and there had been peace between father and son before this whole desperate murder had taken place. Um, we also see that she can't quite kick the habit of messing with Dimitri's head. Um, we see that, you know, as we anticipated, as, as you know, both Dmitri and Grushenka sort of observed when they finally agreed to be together in the, at Makroya, um, both of them are kind of, like, ruining each other's lives. They're making each other miserable. Um, Dmitri and Grushenka still have a very complicated and very fiery relationship. Um, specifically, Grushenka has apparently been spending quite a bit of time with the Poles, who, P.S., have not been doing great in the last three months. We get this story where apparently, like, the, the two Poles have been sending Grushenka a letter literally every day asking to borrow money. And the amount of money that they've requested has steadily gone down. Um, they initially asked her for 2,000 rubles, and then eventually came down to 500, and then 100, and now they're literally asking for, like, 3 rubles, or 1 ruble. And it... Uh, Grushenka goes to visit them only to discover that they are like destitute. They are utterly impoverished. Um, all of the money that they had, even the money that they won from Dmitri that night in Makroya, is all spent, all gone. And we don't exactly understand why. 
Um, like, we don't get any real glimpse into what the Poles are, in fact, doing, what their life has, in fact, sort of boiled down to. It seems that they don't have work, they don't have a source of income, they seem to be utterly separated from the rest of their lives, and if anything, it's this is an indication to us that Grushenka absolutely made the right call by leaving when she did, because clearly they are not in a position to support her. Um, if anything, it seems that the Polish officers were going to rely on their marriage to Grushenka to support themselves. They would be utterly destitute without the money that she has collected and she is making. Um, but Grushenka takes pity on them. And she is, in fact, giving them money at this point. Like, she totally ignored their letters when they were asking for ridiculous sums, 2,000 or 500 rubles. But now that they are truly desperate, she's only, she's giving them one or two or five or ten rubles at a time every time that they send her a letter, which, remember, is every day. Um, but Dmitri has apparently gotten really jealous of the Polish officers and the fact that Grushenka is, in fact, acknowledging them and, and sort of doing what they ask her. Um, and to some degree, we see that Dmitri is also trying to make Grushenka jealous um, by sort of flouting the time that he spent with Katerina Ivanovna. Um, it's very clear that both of these people are sort of deliriously happy in their unhappiness. Um, and Dostoevsky has sort of brought them to this point. Like, here we have these two very passionate, very manipulative individuals who are making each other miserable, and the only reason they are making each other miserable is because they love each other so much, because they are absolutely committed to this relationship. And because there's a sort of desperation about both of their circumstances. Both of them are trying to assert their freedom, their legitimacy in this relationship. Um, it's a painful situation for the two of them. Grushenka is at home, alone. She can't be with Dmitri besides visiting him and at jail. They're all waiting for the trial in order to determine whether or not Grushenka has to, like, go with Dmitri to Siberia. Um, it's very unclear what Grushenka's fate is going to look like in the future. And yet, in some ways, this is the calm before the storm for Grushenka. She has her life in order right now. She just knows that it's going to get radically changed by whatever the outcome of the trial will be. If Dimitri is acquitted, then she then he will return to her, and they will live their life in whatever crazy, dissipated context we see. You know, as Grushenka emphasized back when they were, you know, at Macroya, in all likelihood they were going to spend all their money, blow it all away, and then immediately have to work in sort of destitute conditions until they had come and buy more money, at which point they would blow it all away again, and around and around they would go. Um, that cycle hasn't started because Dimitri is in jail. But presumably if he is released, then that's the cycle they, they expect to live in. But alternatively, if he is convicted, then it's, it is Grushenka's intention to go and be with him in Siberia. Um, that's not a great life, but it is a life. And no matter what happens, it's very much emphasized by both Dmitri and Grushenka that they are 100% connected to the other person at this point. They are ride or die. No matter what horrible circumstances either one of them get into, the other one will be there for them. They cannot live without each other. Um, Grushenka and Dmitri's passion has sort of fused them together in some way. It's terribly romantic and terribly painful to sort of watch and, and track what's going on here. And to some degree, Dostoevsky doesn't give us a lot to work with to sort of see how these characters relate to each other. We don't get to see Grushenka and Dmitri interact 
at all in this book, except for the one chapter of Lacroix where they pledge their love to each other. Um, it's kind of strange in that sense. But to some degree, this is secondary. Um, as much as Grushenka and Dmitri's relationship is the driving plot point behind this entire novel, like Dmitri's love for Grushenka, her obsession, or his obsession for Grushenka, is why he was threatening his father in the first place. It's why he kicked poor Snigirov out of the out of the tavern. Um, it's why he would have murdered Fyodor and why he is accused of murdering Fyodor. Virtually every plot point that has occurred it sort of hinges on this relationship, and yet we very rarely see this relationship dramatized. It's talked about a lot. The characters talk about it a lot, but they do so individually, separately. We don't get to see them actually love each other, which is unusual. But it's also significant. They can't love each other in some sense. They're both so passionate, so, you know, utterly uncontrolled, so, you know, vulnerable and so pained and so suffering that they aren't a functional pair. They aren't a functional relationship. They function in their dysfunction. Um, they will always make each other mad. They will always drive each other nuts. They will always try and make the other person jealous in order to prove, get them to prove that they, in fact, are devoted and, in fact, in love with the other person. Grushenka will drive Dmitri nuts, so Dmitri will prove her love, his love to her, and Dmitri will drive Grushenka nuts, so she will prove his love to him. Uh, it's weird and broken and messed up and kind of sweet. Um, but, unfortunately, that's not the whole of it. Um, again, we see here a glimpse of what exactly is going on with Rakuten and Ivan, that it is Rakuten and Ivan that are apparently upsetting Dmitri, getting between Dmitri and Grushenka, sort of inspiring Dmitri to, you know, make Grushenka jealous and to upset what little bit of domestic tranquility they have. Um, and we also get this, this sort of question does Ivan still love Katerina Ivanovna or not? Um, at the very end of this chapter where Alyosha vis visits Grushenka, it's clear that Ivan and Rakuten are still playing around the margins somewhere, that he, they are both affecting Dmitri's perspective and, and sort of changing Dmitri's own you know, attitude while he is in prison. Um, and Grushenka is worried about this. Like, notice what we see on page 569. And as for Mitya being crazy, that's just what he is now, too, Grushenka suddenly began, with a particularly worried and mysterious sort of look. You know, Alyoshenka, I've wanted to tell you about it for a long time. I visit him every day and simply wonder, tell me what you think. Do you know what he started talking about now? He talks and talks, and I can't understand a thing. I think it must be something intelligent, and I'm just stupid. I can't understand it, but he suddenly started talking about a wee one, that is, about some baby. Why is the wee one poor, he says. For that wee one, I'll go to Siberia now. I'm not a murderer, but I must go to Siberia. What does he mean? What wee one? I didn't understand a thing. I just started crying as he was speaking because he spoke so well and he was crying himself. And I started crying and suddenly he kissed me and made the sign of the cross over me. What is it, Alyosha? Tell me. What is this wee one? And Alyosha responds, it's Rakuten. For some reason, he's taken to visiting him. Although, this, that is not from Rakuten. I didn't go to see him yesterday. Today I shall. No, it's not Rakitka, Grushenko responds. It's his brother Ivan Fyodorovich upsetting him. He keeps going to see him, that's what, Grushenko said, and suddenly stopped short. Alyosha stared at her as if stunned. Keeps going. Has he really gone to see him? Mitya himself told me Ivan had not come once. 
Well, well, there I've done it. Blurted it out, Grushenka exclaimed in embarrassment, turning crimson all over. Wait, Alyosha, don't say anything. Since I blurted it out, so be it. I'll tell you the whole truth. He came to... He came. To, he went to see him twice. The first time, as soon as he arrived, he came galloping here at once from Moscow. I hadn't had time to get sick yet. And the second time, a week ago, he told Mitya not to tell you about it by any means, and not to tell anyone, because he had come in secret. Notice, there's a plot going on here. And it's not clear who all is involved. Now, we're, we figure it out pretty quickly. Dmitri confesses to Alyosha uh, right at the end of their discussion uh, in the chapter A Hymn and a Secret. The secret is that Ivan and uh, Dmitri are planning an escape, and Grushenka is supposedly in on it, because Grushenka has to agree. Um, the idea is that they're going to bust him out of prison, and then they're going to spirit them off to America, and Dmitri and Grushenka will be able to live in America, where the law presumably won't be able to find him. Um, and this this plot, it, again, like, Grushenka is reluctant to tell Alyosha about it. She doesn't tell him that that's, in fact, what they're doing, but she does mention that Ivan has been visiting Dmitri, and that this is supposed to be a secret. And notice, again... I've sort of presented Alyosha and Rakuten as the two poles, the, the, the good and the evil presentation here, and both Dmitri and Ivan's souls seem to be hanging in this balance. Grushenka, on the other hand, she is in her position correctly. She is fixed. She is committed to Dmitri, whatever Dmitri turns out to be. Whether Dmitri decides to sort of succumb to temptation or not, Grushenka will follow him. So, as much as Grushenka is an important character here, she too is sort of passive. She gives us an opportunity in this chapter to see what's going on with her and Dmitri, to see what's going on with Dmitri especially. Um, but also, she doesn't have any choices yet to make. She knows what will happen no matter what happens with the trial. Um, she will follow Dmitri, whatever Dmitri chooses to do. So it is Dmitri's soul, Dmitri's decisions that really matter here. Um, and we'll get to that in its own time. Alyosha's next visit is to Madame Koklikov. And Madame Koklikov is in her typically frivolous and sort of feather-headed, you know, state right here. The major difference that has transpired with Madame Koklikov is that she's been entertaining this Perkotin character, uh, the guy who, the, the little official who came to visit her after he would uh, bought the, or like took the, the pledge back from Dimitri for the pistols. Uh, remember, Dimitri's getting ready to go to Melkroya. He needs money desperately. He pawns his pistols, and then he comes back to Prokotin, and he takes his pistols back, presumably to shoot himself. Uh, remember, the Prokotin afterwards is, like, running around the town like a crazy person trying to figure out, you know, what exactly Dimitri is doing and trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do about it. And in the process, he goes to visit Madame Koklikov, weirdly, because they don't aren't actually, like, formally social or anything. But Madame, Madame Koklikov is taken with Prokotin. And as a widow, she is actually rather interested in him. Not just as, you know, a young man with decent prospects, but as a potential mate. Um, it seems pretty clear that Prokotin is vying for Madame Koplikov's heart. And significantly here, Madame Koplikov is faced with two suitors. Prokotin on the one hand, who she does feel nice towards, who she does, you know, support generously, and who does seem to have attracted her attention, but also Rakuten. Rakuten has apparently been showing up to Madame Koplikov and writing poetry? We get this little fragment here, this little foot, this little foot is hurting now a little bit, which Rakuten is very much riffing on 
some of Pushkin's poetry, like Pushkin sort of infamously uh, wrote about Russian women's little feet, and that was like supposed to be really charming and really romantic, and it's sort of a thing in Russian literature. We've talked about it before. Um, here we get just this fragment, and only what Madame Kotlikov remembers of the poem. We will, in fact, get the poem at length uh, from Dmitri. Dmitri remembers the whole thing. Um, but notice, we once again are sort of presented with this binary decision here. Koklikov is forced to choose between Rakuten and Prokotin. And notice, Rakuten kind of shames himself here. Like, he does proposition Madame Koklikov. He does, in fact, seem to have prospects at marrying her and apparently getting access to her fortune, as we're told later. Um, but we also see that Madame Koklikov doesn't pick up on this very easily. Um, like, she gets that Rakuten is propositioning her after he, in fact, writes her poetry. Uh, but when Prokotin shows up at the same time that Rakuten is there and they almost get into a fight, it is a no-brainer question for Madame Koplikov. She almost throws Rakuten out. And we even get this description where apparently, like, she, you know, raised her voice and immediately passed out and then immediately threw Rakuten out after she came to. Um, clearly, Madame Koplikov doesn't appreciate her circumstances and once again is sort of like featherheadedly just along for this ride as various men are trying to take advantage of her. But Burkotin, at the least, seems to be honest in his intentions and his affections. Yeah, Madame Koklikov seems to want to support Prokotin's career, and Prokotin, for his part, is perfectly happy, you know, being the person who Madame Koklikov displayed or devotes her affections to. Rakuten, on the other hand, is definitely trying to manipulate Koklikov into a marriage for his own profit. He doesn't care about her at all. He just is pretending to seduce her for the sake of his own prospects, for the sake of his own career. It's kind of ugly and messy that way. But once again, we get a glimpse of what's going on behind this. Um, yes, we get a glimpse of Rakuten here, but we also get a glimpse of what's going on with Ivan. Um, Madame Koklikov and, and Alyosha are once again talking about Dmitri and talking about the, the whole affair here, specifically because Rakuten, having been thrown out of Madame Koklikov's house, once again just publishes a whole bunch of searing rumors in some periodical. Madame Koklikov has apparently been reading this Petersburg periodical called Rumors, and in it, Rakuten has apparently accused Madame Koklikov of propositioning Dmitri. Like, he's retold the whole story of the murder, and in this situation, rather than Madame Koklikov talking about gold mines and not offering him a cent, Madame Koklikov apparently offered Dmitri the full 3,000 rubles in order for the two of them to run off to the gold mines together. And then, according to Rakuten, Dmitri preferred to murder his father and take the 3,000 rubles from them, and then presumably go run off with Madame Koklikov. Like, notice what Rakuten is doing here. That because of... Because Madame Koklikov has rebuffed him, Rakuten is spitefully publishing slander about this woman. And because it's the 19th century, there really aren't a whole lot of rules for what's going on in the periodicals at this point in time. Like in the 1860s, when this, is, uh, when this novel is set, this was after the major censors of the, the sort of like Tsar Nikolai's era had kind of been put to bed by Alexander II. Uh, it was very much a free-for-all. And you'll notice that Rakuten takes advantage of this situation, kind of like a scumbag here. Like, not 
what what does he have to gain by publishing this? All he's doing is smearing the character of Madame Koklikov, presumably in vengeance for having been rejected. This is a petty little snub by a petty little man. And that's very much what Rakuten has sort of revealed himself to be here. Like, I've very much emphasized um, that Dostoevsky does not sort of respect intellectualism in its own right. You know, in many other places he's written that it is a dangerous thing, that it possesses people. Um, Ivan, much as we are meant to sympathize with him, is specifically struggling with his intellectualism because it is pitted against an otherwise good and noble heart. As Zosima sort of points out, you know, Ivan is struggling with his idea. He recognizes that if God doesn't exist, all is permitted, and he can't bring himself to believe in God even though he wants to, specifically because of the rebellion chapter that we saw, all of the suffering that Ivan is seeing. But Rakuten doesn't have that decency to him. As Ivan points out, his intellectualism is pretty small-minded. Rakuten is not a brilliant person. He's just, you know, quoting, parroting a couple of thinkers and, you know, repeating these big ideas without any actual convictions about them. But also, as Ivan pointed out, all he's going to ever do is just publish this stuff, make money off of it, just profit. Rakuten is totally in it for selfish, selfish reasons. He doesn't have some selfless idea. He's just trying to promote himself. And he is destined to become, like Musov, way back in the first couple of chapters, somebody who only uses his intellectualism to present his ideas, to further his career, to make money, and to put people down, and to achieve his petty little vengeances. Rakuten is a small-minded intellectual. But of course, the third character is Smerdyakov. You know, his intellectualism is also sort of grouped with Ivan and Rakuten, but Smerdyakov truly does believe in his own nihilism, his own sort of destructive tendencies. But that, again, we'll see in more detail later. Smerdyakov is weirdly not hovering over these chapters, but that's because we will be very much be seeing him in person in the next couple of chapters. Um, so we should definitely be on the lookout for Rakuten here. He is an alarming character at this point. Just as many of the other characters have sort of developed in this three-month period, Alyosha has developed into this sounding board, and Grushenka has developed into a sort of patient, long-suffering, and at the same time kind of angry and mean wife. Um, Madame Koklikov has now developed into an eligible widow who, you know, has intentions of marriage, so we see that Rakuten has developed into a petty little tyrant. He is also going around disseminating his ideas, bringing people down, and talking about foolishness. He is corrupting these people, in a sense, just as Alyosha is reflecting things back at them. And notice, again, the difference between the two approaches. Where Alyosha is consistently listening, everybody is listening to Rakuten. Rakuten is the one proposing his poetry to Madame Koklikov, unsolicited, I might add. He is the one who is talking to Dmitri, filling his head with all of these ideas, um, all this discussion of the we one, which Alyosha, you'll note, mentions is probably the re a response to Rakuten. It is the same sort of intellectualism as we see from Rakuten, but it is not Rakuten's style of intellectualism. Dimitri is responding to the big ideas of Rakuten and uh, Ivan as imperfectly understood and, and discussed as they are with his own brand of goodness, of decency, which, again, we'll talk about in its own proper time. Um, so we see that Rakuten, too, is haunting all of these characters, that he is very much messing with their heads. 
And of course, the real place that this all comes to a head, that we see the real damage that has been done by Rakuten and Ivan sort of floating around, causing havoc, propositioning people, asking questions, is with Lisa. No one has changed more dramatically than Lisa in the last three months. And the chapter we get here, chapter three, A Little Demon, is honestly disturbing. Like, more than any other chapter in this novel, which I know that, like, Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor, everybody gets so excited about them, and Rebellion especially is very disturbing in its own right, and I, you know, prefaced that when we talked about it. As far as the actual action of the novel is concerned, as far as these characters that we've come to meet, to grow and to appreciate, and to sort of understand as time goes on, no change, no transition is more dramatic and more disturbing than that of Liza. Because we don't know what happened here. All, the last time we saw Lisa, we, it was very much the sort of meeting between Lisa and Alyosha, and Alyosha professed that, like, yes, they should absolutely get married, and Lisa admitted that she was in love with him, and, you know, it was sweet, and it was girlish, and it was foolish, and, you know, on the one hand, it was not meant to be taken seriously, but on the other hand, it was so, sort of, like, deadly serious, like, obviously, this was this huge moment for Lisa, even if Alyosha wasn't taking it all that seriously, because Alyosha is Alyosha, and he just doesn't take things that seriously. Um, it was a big moment for her. She was honest with him. She was, you know, frivolous and girlish, but at the same time, passionate and, and honest, sincere. Here, that sincerity, that girlishness, has transformed into something truly self-destructive. Um, we see that Lisa really has become, as the chapter title would suggest, a little demon which is literally what Ivan says about her later when we, in fact, see his conversation with Alyosha. She is monstrous. Um, she is talking about how she doesn't want to marry Alyosha anymore uh, because of her wickedness. Like, look at page 580 here. Uh, this is about halfway down the page. On the contrary, I am very pleased. I've just been thinking over for the 30th time how good it is that I refused you, and I'm not going to be your wife. You're unfit to be a husband. I'd marry you and suddenly give you a note to take to someone I'd, fall, I'd have fallen in love with after you, and you would take it and make sure to deliver it and even bring back the reply, and you'd be 40 years old and still carrying such notes. And she suddenly laughed. There was something wicked and guileless about you at the same time, Alyosha smiled at her. Notice, at this point, Lisa has apparently become malicious just for the sake of malicious. Yes, she would have married Alyosha, and she would have forced him to participate and, you know, aid her affairs. Like, she would be sleeping with other people, cheating on him, and having him be the one to bring the messages back and forth. Like, so low would be her opinion of him. So low is her opinion of herself at this point that she sees herself doing this. But it gets even worse. Like, she admits on page 581, I keep wanting to set fire to the house on the sly. Like, I want to set fire to my own house and just watch it burn. Um, she says if she's ever poor, she'll kill someone. And maybe she'll even kill someone if she's rich. Um, she talks about this dream that she's had, where apparently, like, there are all these demons surrounding her, and she crosses herself, and they, like, back away to the edges of the room, but then she, like, blasphemes against God, and they all come closer. And yet, at that particular moment, when she describes this dream to Alyosha, Alyosha says, I've sometimes had the same dream. And we just get this weird glimpse of this character that otherwise is so innocent. And honestly, it is her innocence that 
leads her to this. She is, again, as Alyosha says, guilelessly evil. She is innocently evil. She wants to destroy herself, wants to destroy everything, even says that at one point. Like, it's so boring uh, to, to just watch the house burn, to, uh, to be in this, this life, rich or poor. She is destroying herself, destroying other people, smashing good things for the pure sake of it being interesting. And there's something very warped about this. Like, it was warped when we saw it in, in Notes from Underground. It's warped here. Um, and it's unclear how exactly this has happened. Like, Alyosha describes her as being sick, almost insane. And we don't know why she is sick or insane. The one hint we get is that apparently there are bad books. Like, notice, on page 582... Alyosha observes, and he's totally patient throughout. He never judges Lisa, he never gets upset with her, he never rebukes her. He always just accepts this tacitly. Like, again, Alyosha is the sounding board here. He very rarely says anything that, act that like, actively changes their perspective. No, he just lets them speak and lets that itself sink in. So notice, on 582, it says, Alyosha was struck most of all by her seriousness. Not a shadow of laughter or playfulness was left on her face, though before, gaiety and playfulness had not abandoned her, even in her most serious moments. There are moments when people love crime, Alyosha said pensively. Yes, yes, Lisa responds. You've spoken my own thought. They love it. They all love it. And they love it always, not just at moments. You know, it's as if some at some point they all agreed to lie about it and have been lying about it ever since. They all say they hate what's bad, but secretly they all love it. And are you still reading bad books? Alyosha asks. Yes, Mama reads them and hides them under her pillow, and I steal them. Aren't you ashamed to be ruining yourself? Alyosha asks. I want to ruin myself. There's a boy here, and he lay down under the tracks while a train rode over him. Lucky boy! Listen, your brother is on trial now for killing his father, and they all love it that he killed his father. They love it that he killed his father. They love it! They all love it! Everyone says it's terrible, but secretly they all love it terribly, and I'm the first to love it. There's some truth in what you say about everyone, Alyosha said softly. Notice what we're doing here, what Dostoevsky is sort of observing. We've seen frequently in this novel this undercurrent of evil. Like back when Elder Zosima died and started to stink, and all of a sudden the entire crowd, all of the monks, they're all sort of talking quietly about it. Because as Elder Zosima had himself said in his last homily, everyone enjoys watching the fall of a good man. Alyosha is observing that, yeah, this is still true. As much as this is a battle between good and evil, we have to recognize that there's two kinds of evil that Dostoevsky has been talking about throughout this whole novel. On the one hand, we see the evil of Rakuten, this evil of big ideas, this evil of, you know, big anarchism or communism or, you know, big thoughts that, you know, take over a person's brain and, and lead, lead them to stop acting like a human being. Um, ideas that, like, you know... All of the great socialist utopians are somehow more knowledgeable than just the basic peasant wisdom that is, you know, present all over the place in Russia at this point in time. Um, there's evil there. There is that possession. Um, it is the evil that comes from Europe. But at the same time, Dostoevsky is acknowledging that there's something even more fundamental, something even more basic about the evil that is simple, that is innocent, that is guileless. The evil that 
inhabits the peasants when they show up just to see Elder Zosima's stick, or the evil that Liza admits to when she talks about wanting to destroy things, wanting to set fire to the house on the sly and just watch it burn. There's a sort of tacit admission here. There's this recognition by Liza and by Alyosha that yes, everyone condemns Dimitri for having killed his father, and yet everyone is enthralled by this. The theatricality of it. The fact that this horrible viciousness has occurred, they revel in it. They love telling rumors about it. And we've seen that here. Madame Koklikov and uh, Grushenka are both, they're both keen to talk about this affair, keen to talk about the violence and the, the suffering and the pain here. It's exciting. It's dramatic. It's interesting. As much as Lisa is very much stressing here, you know, how boring her life has become and all of these these people and all of these things that she is doing as much as it is boring she also recognizes that this evil is both boring and interesting that it is both the thing that livens everything up and is also predictable and unpleasant dostoevsky is sort is admitting this here and as much as we are seeing this battle between alyosha and rakitin note that alyosha at the very least acknowledges this evil in himself Yes, I too have the same dream where I blaspheme the devil's draw close because I want to. I too acknowledge that everybody is excited about Dimitri, that everybody wants his pain, his suffering, his awfulness, this misdeed, this great evil. Alyosha sees that in himself as well. And on some level, he's not interested in fighting that. He can't. It's too primordial. It's too basic to who he is and who all of these people are. It's not something you can, in fact, fight. He can absolutely pit himself against Rakuten. He can absolutely ask questions and get people to sort of reveal and acknowledge the hidden depths of themselves. But I almost wonder here if Alyosha encouraging Lisa to sort of reflect, to sort of be honest with him, isn't actually dredging up something truly awful. Maybe Lisa really is, at the end of the day, just straight-up evil. Like, innocently evil. This very much seems to go against a lot of what Dostoevsky has been saying throughout this novel. That Dostoevsky has been encouraging everyone to self-reflect, and has been encouraging everyone to sort of recognize their own, you know, faults and their own horribleness. But there is this other side to it. Remember... Zosima and his sort of formula, the sort of theme that I penned down in that biblical passage about the corn of wheat falling to the ground, it implies that everyone is guilty before everyone else. And on the one hand, we've sort of talked about that in a superficial way. Like, yes, Dimitri has in fact hurt people, and by admitting that he hurts people, he, ha he does in fact, you know, move forward, move towards his own redemption. He accepts the punishment that has come upon him when, in fact, he's being interrogated here. Um, Alyosha, on the other hand, as much as he is guilty before others, he, he has his moment of weakness where, yes, bring on your sausage, bring on your vodka, let's go to Grushenka's, and then immediately like can't go through with, it, through with it, and in fact inspires Grushenka to a great noble admission. Alyosha never has really acknowledged why he's guilty before others. He acknowledges that he is, and this is an important sort of moment in his development. It, it is very much the key thing that needs to happen in order for him to change, to 
be redeemed. But it's possible that the reason why he is guilty before others is because he does bring this out. He does sometimes cause evil people to be evil. And he, Dostoevsky is suggesting that at some root level, we are all evil, including Alyosha. We all do want to blaspheme God. We all do take pride in seeing a good man fall. And we all do love gossip and love spreading stories about parasites. And we do love seeing people locked up and imprisoned. We enjoy the theatricality of trials. And we want to see people suffer for their crimes or even just suffer because they annoy us for their goodness or otherwise. Alyosha sees that in himself. And he brings it out of Lisa. And Lisa, it's hard to say what her deal is here. We've only seen her a few times over the course of this book as well, mostly messing with Alyosha, mostly having these sorts of passionate conversations. It's hard to say what honestly is Lisa in this case. She was honest when she wanted to marry Alyosha, and she's honest now when she sees that that is a problem, that she is actually a terrible person. And I wonder what this means for her character what Lisa actually is supposed to be telling us here. This admission of her own evil isn't the result of Rakuten, although we do get that hint about there being bad books that she's sort of reading and, and taking. Um, the last scene of Liza's depravity that we see, the last sort of example of the story that she tells, is of this boy who was apparently abducted by a Jew and then the Jew cut off all of his fingers and crucified him. But there was apparently this story, this rumor going around that Jews did this during Passover, and then apparently there was this trial. It's not clear exactly why. I don't think this is typical of Dostoevsky's anti-Semitism. This is probably Dostoevsky observing anti-Semitism in the world at large. Suffice it to say that this is a horrible rumor for a wide variety of reasons, and Dostoevsky includes it for I'm not even sure why. But important for us is Lisa's reaction to it. And Lisa says that apparently here is this four-year-old boy crucified who dies over the course of four hours, and this person is watching him die, and acknowledging, saying that it was good. And Lisa responds, sometimes I imagine that it was I who crucified him. He hangs there moaning, and I sit down facing him, eat, eating pineapple compote. I like pineapple compote very much. Do you? Alyosha was silent and looked at her. Her pale yellow face suddenly became distorted. Her eyes lit up. You know, after I read about that Jew, I shook with tears the whole night. I kept imagining how the child cried and moaned, and I couldn't get the thought of the compote out of my mind. In the morning, I sent a letter to a certain man, telling him that he must come and see me. He came, and I suddenly told him about the boy and the compote, and I told him everything, everything, and said it was good. He suddenly laughed and said it was indeed good. Then he got up and left. He stayed only five minutes. Did he despise me? Did he? Speak, speak, Alyosha. Did he despise me or not? And Alyosha asks, did you yourself send for him? And she answers that she did. And we are suggested here, it is suggested here, that this is Ivan who she sent the message to. And once again, here he is floating in the margins of what's going on. Apparently, Lisa summoned Ivan to tell him about this awful wickedness, this scene that would absolutely be right in 
good company with the rest of that chapter on rebellion. That thing that Ivan himself hates, is disgusted by it, sends his ticket to heaven back because of it. And Lisa says it was good. And Ivan agrees. Once again, we're led to wonder what the heck is going on with Ivan here. Like, Lisa has apparently lost her mind. Presumably because she's interacting with Ivan, perhaps because of her own root evil, perhaps because it has been sort of drawn out by Alyosha or encouraged by Rakuten, it's not clear what has happened to Lisa over these last three months. But when she, finally, at the end of this chapter, she crushes her own fingers in the door, we see how far she's gone, how badly she wants to hurt herself, destroy herself. Mean, 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 she says. And it's not clear why. What it is that she hates about herself, what it is that's so wrong, besides these sorts of glimpses and hints, these stories she's heard, the bad books that she's reading, and the dreams that she's having, and it's not clear what is the cause and what is the effect, what is the symptom and what is the root disease. She stresses it's not an illness. And Alyosha tends to take her at her word, and we should take Alyosha. But whatever it is that's causing this, it is very much wrapped up with whatever is going on with Ivan. That apparently Lisa has started entrusting herself to Ivan, and in doing so, this situation has become worse, in all likelihood for both of them. Because here we have an Ivan who is no longer struggling with his goodness. No, here is an Ivan who looks at the exact same depravity that he once refused to accept, considered his morality higher than God's. And now Ivan is saying that that same depravity is good. That could be a sign that he is turning to Christianity. That now he is trying to see things from God's perspective, accepts God's morality. It could also be that he's gone the other way. That he too is suffering some sort of horrific mental illness. That he too has totally lost his way. It's not clear. And we haven't seen Ivan at this point. We've only caught these few glimpses, these cryptic little glances of what Ivan is doing. Where we finally do see a better picture is in the chapter that Dimitri gives us. And we see Dimitri very much struggling in prison. We saw his redemption. Like, we saw when he was arrested, he accepted it. I didn't kill my father, he says, but I accept being arrested. And he seems to insist upon this. That whole bit that Grushenka acknowledged the, the passage about the we one, we see him develop this idea more here, but we see it finally contextualized. Apparently both Rakuten and Ivan have been visiting Dmitri, and each time that Dmitri talks to them, he takes some of their ideas away with him. So Dmitri has this battle waging in his soul. On the one hand, we have Alyosha, and his revelation that, yes, he is guilty before everyone. The, the sort of recognition that, yes, despite the fact that he didn't kill his father, he is still guilty, he still deserves to go to Siberia, he still deserves to be punished, just as the theme of this novel would seem to suggest. But on the other hand, we have Rakuten, and we have Ivan, we have their big ideas. We have Ivan saying that, no, actually a soul like Dimitri's would better serve free in America, and that's why we're plotting for his escape. We see instead, you know, rather than Dimitri sort of accepting the redemption of his soul, being caught up with his passion, no, now he's stuck in his prison cell. 
He's thinking all the time. He doesn't have the time to, or he doesn't have the opportunity to get worked up and go on a spree, to let his sort of thoughts carry him away into frivolous action. No, now he's forced to think, to think through everything. And as a consequence, it's these very philosophies, these very ideas that are fighting, waging war against Dimitri's own inclinations. Like, notice what he says here, page 592. No, life is full. There is life underground, too, he began again. You wouldn't believe, Alexei, how I want to live now. What thirst to exist and be conscious has been born in me precisely within these peeling walls. Rakuten doesn't understand it. All he wants is to build his house and rent out rooms, but I was waiting for you. And besides, what is suffering? I'm not afraid of it, even if it's numberless. I'm not afraid of it now. I was before. You know, maybe I won't even give any answers in court. And it seems to me there's so much strength in me now that I can overcome everything, all sufferings, only in order to say and tell myself every moment, I am. In a thousand torments, I am. Writhing under torture, but I am. Locked up in a tower, but still I exist. I see the sun, and if I don't see the sun, still I know it is. And the whole of life is there in knowing that the sun is. Alyosha, my cherub, all these philosophies are killing me, devil take them. And he brings up Brother Ivan again. Notice, on the one hand, we have Rakuten and Ivan sort of fighting for their big ideas, their idea of what goodness actually is. Rakuten especially seems to be emphasizing this very sort of communist, socialist view of goodness here, um, that I am going to have civic use, and that uh, Dimitri also has to be of civic use. And yet, Dimitri himself sees a deeper goodness here. Not civic usefulness, not good for the benefit of society. No, good in and of itself. Good because he knows that the sun is. Good because he recognizes the goodness in the world. Dim I Ivan and Rakuten, their intellectualism, their inherited socialism from the Europeans abroad, have kind of taken goodness to mean doing good for the community, i.e., donating money or working hard. And that's not the goodness that either Dimitri or Alyosha seem to acknowledge. Dimitri, his obsession with the we one that uh, we were talking about before, he in, sort of ties this to this recognition that there's just so many poor people, so many suffering people, that where Grushenka thought he was referring to a specific person, a specific baby, or a specific child, instead he seems to stress that this we one refers to everybody. We are all we ones. So notice what he says on page 591. Rakuten wouldn't understand this, he began, all in a sort of rapture as it were, but you, you will understand everything. That's why I've been thirsting for you. You see, for a long time I've been wanting to say many things to you here, within these peeling walls, but I've kept silent about the most important thing. The time didn't seem to have come yet. I've been waiting till this last time to pour out my soul to you. Brother, in these past two months I've sensed a new man in me. A new man has arisen in me. He was shut up inside me, but if it weren't for this thunderbolt, he never would have appeared. Frightening! What do I care if I spend twenty years pounding out iron ore in the mines? I'm not afraid of that at all, but I'm afraid of something else now that this risen man not depart from me. Even there, in the mines, underground, you can find a human heart in the convict and murderer standing next to you, and you can be close to him, because there, too, it's possible to live and love and suffer. You can revive and resurrect the frozen heart of this convict. You can look after him for years and finally bring him up from the cave into a light, into the light, a soul that is lofty now, a suffering consciousness. You can re revive an angel, resurrect a hero. And there are many of them. There are hundreds, and we're all guilty for them. Why did I have a dream about a wee one at such a moment? Why is the wee one poor? 
It was a prophecy to me at that moment. It's for the wee one that I will go. Because everyone is guilty, for everyone else, for all the wee ones, because there are little children and big children. All people are wee ones. And I go for all of them, because there must be someone who will go for all of them. I didn't kill Father, but I must go. I accept. All of this came to me here, within these peeled walls. And there are many, there are hundreds of them underground, with hammers in their hands. Oh yes, we'll be in chains, and there will be no freedom, but then, in our great grief, we will arise once more into joy without which it's not possible for man to live, or for God to be, for God gives joy. It's his prerogative, a great one. Lord, let man dissolve in prayer. How would I be there underground without God? Rakuten's line, if God is driven from the earth, we'll meet him underground. It's impossible for a convict to be without God, even more impossible than for a non-convict. And then from the depths of the earth, we, the men underground, will start singing a tragic hymn to God, in whom there is joy. Hail to God and his joy. I love him. Notice what Dostoevsky and Dmitri are suggesting here, what this hymn in this chapter on a hymn and a secret actually means. Dmitri has, at least as Dostoevsky has it, truly sussed out that God is the essence of what goodness actually is. That what, what Ivan, what Rakuten are promising is some kind of social goodness. A goodness that doesn't rule out the possibility of, like, locking people up, executing them, punishing them for their crimes, holding them guilty before the state. And yet, as Zosima has pointed out to us, no one is going to actually feel guilty before the state. Goodness is never going to come in the form of the state, as far as Zosima, as far as Alyosha, as far as Dimitri here is concerned. No, goodness exists in prison. And goodness can be had, joy can be had, wherever you are. The mark of Rakuten and of Ivan and of Smerdyakov, the mark of all of this intellectualism, is not actually striving towards a new goodness, but rather it's a mark of losing joy. Ivan, Rakuten, and Smerdyakov have no joy, for different reasons. Smerdyakov has no joy because, like Lisa, he is bored by joy, bored by happiness, bored because it is always mitigated. There is no pure joy. There is only momentary happiness to be destroyed and ruined by the other evil in the world. For Ivan, there is no joy. There is only suffering because there is so much misery, because he can't get the suffering person out of his mind. And for Rakuten, there is no joy. There is only complacency. There is only getting money so he can go on with the next stage of his plan. In Dimitri there is joy, and in Alyosha there is joy, and in Zosima there is joy. Heck, for Koklikov and for Grushenka, and even when she's feeling lucid for Lisa, there is joy. And without God there can be no joy. Without God there is only guilt. That's what Dimitri acknowledges here. The battle that Dmitri is waging is one in his soul against the big ideas of Ivan and Rakuten, this social goodness that seems to be promised, the fact that he can be of civic value to others, if only he escapes from prison, if only this injustice is corrected. But Dmitri, it doesn't matter to him. Justice and injustice aren't even something he's interested in talking about. At no point... In his conversation with Alyosha, does he say, 
that it is unjust for him to go to prison because he didn't kill his father. No, on the contrary, he's saying, yeah, I accept prison. And at least as far as both Alyosha and Dmitri are concerned, they are right to do so. It is right for him to go to prison. And to some degree, it is right for him to be indifferent to this. It is right for him to acknowledge that even in prison, he can find joy. What is truly at stake for Dmitri has nothing to do with the trial that's coming. It has nothing to do with whether he is released or whether he goes to jail. That is of no consequence to Dmitri. What matters to him is, can he keep this new man, this new perfected version of himself? That's what is important. This discovery that he made back in Makroya, when he realized that, you know, he was guilty before all. That same revelation that Alyosha experienced and that Zosima talks about, that same revelation of the corn falling into the ground and thereby giving up fruit, that's what Dimitri wants. And there is no danger that that is going to go away when he's in prison. It will be there in prison just as it is on the outside. The danger is the one presented by Ivan and by Rakuten. The idea that somehow that is an inferior wisdom, an inferior philosophy to the truth that they possess, the truth of some sort of social good. What Ivan and Rakuten would say to Dimitri is that this is foolishness, that there is no good just because you feel good about it, that there is no good in some joy or revelation. That is a selfish good. That all Christian teaching, all Christian goodness, is in fact the same kind of selfish goodness. No, what Rakuten and Ivan say is, no, the only way that you can be good is by doing good for others, by going out and being a good person, by, by being civic or civically useful. And on some level, Dimitri rejects that. Like, on some gut level, Dimitri knows that that's wrong. So the question here should he escape, is in fact the temptation to see that this matters, that somehow the injustice of his arrest takes precedence over the transformation in his heart. Dimitri, if anything, needs to go to jail. That's the suggestion that both Dimitri and Alyosha seem to make here, that he needs to repent, he needs to do his penance, Yes, he didn't kill his father, but that doesn't mean he's off the hook. Think of all the other people that Dmitri has hurt over the course of this novel. Think of Grushenka, think of Alyosha, think of poor Ilyusha and Snegirov. Think of the Poles, for that matter. Dmitri has done horrible things over the course of this novel. Poor Grigory, he practically beat him to death. He thought he'd killed him. He was feeling awfully guilty for that. He deserves to go to jail. The guilt or innocence, the acquittal or the condemnation, it doesn't matter anymore. Dimitri deserves to go to jail on some higher level than anything that anyone else is talking about here. Ivan and Rakuten don't see that. They see only the civic truth. They see only the law. They see only what the actual outcome of the trial will say and whether or not that is rooted in reality or, in fact, misjudged. For Dimitri, this has so much more to do with his behavior as a person, everything that he's done. This trial means nothing to him, even though this moment 
This is everything. He has to choose here. He has to come out one way or the other, either with his new man, this one that recognizes his guilt before all the wee ones of the world, the Ilyushas and the Snegirovs, the people who he's wronged horribly, or let that become secondary. Let that fade away. Accept instead that he isn't guilty, and therefore is being treated unjustly. Now, the last confrontation between Dmitri and, and Alyosha here, the, one, the first of the two times that Alyosha is in fact brought to speak, to act, is when Dmitri asks him, do you believe whether, that I killed father or not? As he says on page 597, again he firmly grasped Alyosha by the shoulders with both hands. His face suddenly became quite pale so that it was terribly noticeable in the near, near darkness. His lips twisted. His eyes were fixed on Alyosha. Alyosha, tell me the complete truth as before the Lord God. Do you believe I killed father or not? You, you yourself, do you believe it or not? The complete truth. Don't lie, he cried to him frenziedly. Alyosha wheeled, as it were, in his heart. He could feel it, seemed pierced by some sharp thing. No, don't, what are you, he murmured as if at a loss. The whole truth, the whole, don't lie, Mitya repeated. Never for a single moment have I believed that you are the murderer. The trembling voice suddenly burst from Alyosha's breast, and he raised his right hand as if calling on God to witness his words. Mitya's whole face instantly lit up with bliss. Thank you, he uttered slowly, as if sighing after a swoon. Now you've revived me. Would you believe it up to now I was afraid to ask you? Even you? You? Well, go, go. You've strengthened me for tomorrow. God bless you. Well, go. Love Ivan, was the last word that burst from Mitya. But there's a lot to sort of take apart here. First off, somehow Mitya is really counting on Alyosha believing that he is innocent. As much as Mitya does acknowledge his guilt before everyone, seems to have some sort of subconscious awareness that he needs to do his penance, that he needs to go to jail, that there are all these wee ones who are wrong and that somebody needs to suffer for their sake, and Dmitri is willing to take up that responsibility, willing to suffer for the sake of all the wee ones, somehow it is still incredibly important to him that Alyosha, Alyosha specifically, recognizes innocence. That Dmitri recognizes that, yes, he is guilty before everyone. Yes, he is a criminal. Yes, he has done terrible things and hurt so many people, and yet he is not guilty of his father's blood. I'm not entirely sure what that means. But it is equally important that when Alyosha does, in fact, get the nerve to respond, he responds powerfully. Never for a single moment have I believed that you were the murderer, Alyosha says. Which is also strange. You know, he was about to hem and haw, and yet he gives Dmitri exactly what he wants to hear. And this is one of two times that Alyosha speaks in this way, in this section. This is the first. And it seems almost as though he's not even the one doing the speaking. That it burst from him. He raises his right hand as if calling on God to witness. Alyosha seems to be, in these couple of times where he is actually active, more than just asking questions and operating as a mirror for people to appreciate themselves in, it seems that on these couple of occasions he is speaking the truth of God himself, that he has become God's prophet to Dmitri and to Ivan. It's less clear here than it is when he addresses Ivan, but it is nonetheless very striking 
and Dostoevsky emphasizes it. It burst from him. It wasn't his. It was there, and it came out, and Alyosha had very little agency in this. But the last thing that we should definitely pay attention to here is Dmitri's response. First, he is very glad. He's beyond excited to hear that Alyosha, in fact, believes in his innocence. And I don't know whether that's because he cares about his what his brother thinks of him, or because he recognizes that he is sort of addressing God in this moment, and therefore it is terribly important to Dimitri to have God believe in his innocence, that he is innocent of his father's blood. It's unclear. But so potent is the fact that Dimitri's last words are to love Ivan. And Dostoevsky even emphasizes them again in the following paragraph. Love Ivan. There's something fatal about this address. Dimitri acknowledges on some way that he is going to be fine. That yes, he is in terrible pain, terrible grief and despair. Alyosha suddenly recognizes this. That despite the fact that Dimitri has been speaking so passionately, that Dimitri doesn't seem to care whether he goes to prison or not, it doesn't change the fact that he's suffering horribly. But that joy that he talked about is compatible with this suffering. He can suffer and yet experience joy, experience goodness, experience this repentance, recognize that he suffers for a cause, that his suffering is exactly what is necessary for fruit to grow, that because he suffers, others will be better for it. But it doesn't change the fact that that's terrible suffering, the very same suffering that the elder Zosima predicted ages ago when he cut through to Dmitri's character. Alyosha sees that then. And yet, as much as Dmitri is suffering here, he asks not for something good for himself, but for Ivan. Because as much as Dmitri is suffering, Dmitri is suffering knowing that there is joy, knowing that there is hope. He rests content in his suffering. On some deeper level, he is happy that he suffers. But Ivan, Ivan's still in the wind. Ivan hasn't made his decision yet. Where Dmitri and Alyosha have both been saved, have both experienced this tremendous moment of, I dare say, conversion, though that isn't exactly what's going on here, this moment of repentance, this acknowledgement of their guilt before others, this solemn acknowledgement of the truth of that biblical passage that has been hanging over this whole book, this solemn acknowledgement of their guilt, if not before everyone, then before God, Ivan has not made that change. Ivan doesn't necessarily believe in God. And without God, as Dmitri has acknowledged, there is no joy to be had. Where Ivan is is still in that Rakitin Smerdyakov territory of believing in some sort of civic good, that somehow the best one can do is to be useful. Ivan can't bring himself to believe in God. And so he says crazy things, like what he said to Lisa about it being good that the poor four-year-old with his fingers cut off is suffering, despite the fact that he had rejected it just a little while ago. Here, we finally see Ivan. 
Ivan, who has apparently been floating around talking to people this entire time, sort of disseminating bad ideas to Dimitri and to Lisa, who has troubled Dimitri and caused Dimitri to have this sort of crisis of conscience, ho hoping that the new man in him isn't extinguished by Ivan's big intelligent ideas and Rakuten's small intelligent ideas. Alyosha finally does catch up with Ivan, and it seems that Ivan no longer has any tolerance for Alyosha. Ivan actually dismisses him here. His final parting words are to leave me alone. I will not see you again. But before that happens, they have a conversation about who killed Fyodor Karamazov. And we're asked, then who is the murderer, in your opinion? Ivan asks Alyosha. He asked somehow with obvious coldness, and a certain haughty t t note even sounded in the tone of the question. You know who, Alyosha said softly and with emotion. Who? You mean that fable about the mad epileptic idiot, about Smerdyakov? Alyosha suddenly felt himself trembling all over. You know who escaped him helplessly. He was breathless. Who? Who? Ivan cried almost fiercely now. All his reserve suddenly vanished. I know only one thing, Alyosha said, still in the same near whisper. It was not you who killed father. Not you? What do you mean by not you? Ivan was dumbfounded. It was not you who killed father. Not you, Alyosha repeated firmly. The silence lasted for about half a minute. But I know very well it was not me. Are you raving? Ivan said with a pale and crooked grin. His eyes were fastened, as it were, on Alyosha. The two were again standing under a street lamp. No, Ivan, you've told yourself several times that you were the murderer. When did I... I was in Moscow! When did you... When did I say so? Ivan stammered, completely at a loss. You've said it to yourself many times while you were alone during these two horrible months. Alyosha continued as softly and distinctly as before. But he was now speaking not of himself, as it were, not of his own will, but obeying some sort of irresistible command. You've accused yourself and confessed to yourself that you and you alone are the murderer, but it was not you who killed him. You were mistaken. The murderer was not you. Do you hear? It was not you. God has sent me to tell you that. Once again, Alyosha is operating as the mouthpiece of God here. He is compelled to this. Dostoevsky isn't even mincing words here. He presents Alyosha as though he is prophesying to Ivan, and Ivan can't even figure out why Alyosha thinks to tell him this. Notice how Ivan responds. How do you know this? How do you know that I have been accusing myself? You weren't in Moscow. You weren't listening in on me when I was talking to that mysterious figure that, we, that he refers to. Alyosha emphasizes over and over it was not you, and it is for this very reason that Ivan rejects him. Alexei Fyodorovich Ivan Fyodorovich Ivan says, I cannot bear prophets and epileptics, messengers from God especially. You know that only too well. From this moment on, I am breaking with you, and I suppose forever. I ask you to leave me this instant, at this very crossroads. Besides, your way home is down this lane. Beware especially of coming to me today. Do you hear? Ivan hears God's message from Alyosha and rejects it, tells him never to see him again. Dimitri is fine, and will be fine. 
as long as he can overcome the temptation to reject this new man in him, this temptation born of Ivan and Rakuten's suggestions and plots and plans, Dmitri will be fine. But Ivan has no hope, quite literally. He has no hope of joy. He has no hope of God. He literally has God tell him the message that he needs to hear. In Alyosha's voice, it was not you who killed father. And he rejects it. He prefers his guilt. He prefers his insane self-destruction, much as Liza did. Now, we've only seen a bit of this, and at this point, it's barely even foreshadowed. In the chapters to come, we're going to look at Ivan. We're going to see him as deeply as we ever have. And we're going to finally understand what all this is about. What Alyosha is referring to, even without knowing what he's referring to. And why Ivan is so scared, so frustrated, so upset by this revelation. When we say that this is the section on Brother Ivan Fyodorovich, it's more than just him hanging around in the shadows. For next time, we're going to look at exactly why Ivan feels that he is guilty of his father's blood. I look forward to talking about that with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, Share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.